0: It takes time, um, and it takes uh, moments where you'll feel like, I don't know what I'm doing anymore, and then other moments of like, I've never been so happy in my life, and they may be in the same day, and that's okay. I'm Mitch.
1: And I'm Missy.
2: We're co-workers.
1: He's the boss, and we're married.
2: And she's the boss. Together, we host Good Faith Weekly, a podcast on faith and culture.
1: What could possibly go wrong?
2: Tune in and find out. Missy. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Missy and I are going to catch up and she is back in studio after battling a nasty case of COVID. And then later on in the pod... We sat down with Brad Onishi. Brad is the co-host of Straight White American Jesus podcast, along with his co-host, Daniel Miller, and his latest book, Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next, is available right now. It is a fantastic conversation that I promise you, you're not going to want to miss. It's going to be a great pod. Stay tuned. there, Missy. It is so good to have you back in the studio.
1: Thanks. It's good to be back.
2: Well, you survived a second round of COVID.
1: I did. Survived. Still on the mend. Uh, a little bit of congestion and brain fog, but uh, much, much better than last. Well, you time.
2: sound so much better. I mean, you're. I mean, you sound more like a pack a day smoker instead of a two pack a day smoker
1: (laughs) true i would make a terrible smoker (laughs) that's for sure (laughs) no doubt about it Uh, so i'm so excited to be back uh this week because we had brad onishi on and who i am just super starstruck by and and super excited to talk to this week and we are going to be talking about his book, uh, "Preparing for War," um, and along with his podcast that he does with Daniel Miller each week. Actually, I think they have they release three a week. Yeah, I can you
2: imagine doing that three times a week?
1: No, <laughs> you and I would be divorced. <laughs>
2: <least> we <we're> or not. <laughs> <laughs>
1: True, but in in any case, um, one of the things we talk about with him and and kind of the basis for his book. Um, about Christian nationalism and about his upbringing or not upbringing, but his, um, time in the church and, and kind of being indoctrinated into the right wing evangelical movement, um, got me thinking about our backgrounds, Mm -hmm. which were a little bit different. You and I were kind of born into that community and that way of thinking, um, And it just brought back a lot of memories of what kind of that uh, Christian nationalism movement looked like for me in church. And so I thought I'd ask you, do you remember any instances of what, what kind of did that look like for you in church? Those moments or those things that happened or that were going on within your faith community that maybe you didn't realize at the time?
2: Yeah, I mean, let me let me begin by saying this. I mean, my parents did the best they could uh, when we were younger. My dad was 19, my mom was 20 when they had me. Uh, they knew they wanted to raise their family in the church. Um, they really had no idea what kind of church they wanted to raise their children in, and so they went to my great-grandmother, who was a Southern Baptist, and so therefore— that's where we ended up, in a Southern Baptist church. And all throughout my childhood and adolescence, I can just remember time and time again hearing sermons from the pulpit, hearing lessons in Sunday school that constantly tied this idea of a fundamentalist, rigid Christianity with this extreme nationalism, that the two went hand in hand. You To be a good Christian, you had to be a good American, and to be a good American, you had to be a good Christian. Right. And the two always were together, never separated.
1: Right. It all went hand in hand. There yeah. was no separation. I mean, for example, I mean, just the go to vacation Bible school. Oh, did, yeah.
2: Easy. I mean, that's an easy one. How <laughs> did you start
1: vacation Bible school each morning? Yeah, you, in said, the summer? you said the pledges. The pledges. With all them. three of them. All three. Exactly. All three. <laughs> and, you know, I'm quite confident you and I both grew up with flags in the sanctuary. Oh, flags the in the sanctuary,
2: flag. Uh, patriotic. Songs. I mean, I even had
1: the Texas flag. I'm quite confident in our sanctuary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, as it should be. Right? <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for everybody who lives outside the Tex, outside of Texas, is a Texan.
1: <laughs> so, but do you know what? What I was reminded of as we were, as I was reading his book and as we were conducting the interview. There was a time um, where we lived in Waco, Texas, Mm -hmm. and our church, every single Sunday, closed out the worship service. Everyone would stand, and you know how you might have a benediction or something like that? Right. We sang... I'm in the Lord's army.
2: <laughs> well, of course you complete were complete
1: <laughs> with like hand motions, you know, I may never
2: march. Oh, in the yes.
1: Right in the cavalry. Our audience can't see me doing <laughs> She's the motions. Doing right the right hand out. motions right now. Um you know, so I'm sorry you're missing out. But it never those things never even occurred to me. And then yeah. it reminded me of the song we sang all the time, Onward Christian Soldiers. Sure marching into war, you know? Yeah, I
2: mean, even within Christianity itself, and you cannot deny this, uh, even the textual evidence uh, in the New Testament, especially the Pauline letters, there is a mixture of war type of, or or militant type of language to uh, project the Christian faith That's kind of always been a part of who we are, but during the European conquest, it really ratcheted up to merge the Christian faith with this high view of nationalism. And then, of course, here in America, we just decided, you know, hey, let's just really take it up 10 notches.
1: Right. And we're and it's it's very much about that kind of conquering mentality and like we've talked about before and kind of ad nauseum on this podcast about the conversion, 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 which you know, loosely translates to conquering well, sure. and overpowering and controlling and things like that. So yeah, I was as I was before we came on, I was kind of looking up the lyrics to some of these hymns and songs that we used to sing, and as I'm seeing them written on paper rather than just the tune in my head, it's just it's a little bit cringy. <laughs> it's I mean, a little bit cringy. It really is. Yeah. Um, so, anyways, it was just it was just interesting to kind of relive some of these th- memories and and things, and we'll talk about it a little bit in the interview as as Brad does in the book about um, the comparison of the uh, marching around Jericho and Joshua six with January sixth and some of these ideas and things that were just so ingrained in us and and like you said you know our parents i mean we were very much a product of where we lived and and where we grew up and and the community at large it wasn't that they they weren't seeing it either Mm -hmm. i I think in in large
2: i think that's one of the things that brad really does well both in the book in the interview and then of course on his podcast with uh, daniel miller is the he and then stress the importance of personal narrative and that we all come to faith with unique narratives. And when we get to a point in our faith where we begin to question things as you and I have done and begin the process of deconstruction, we cannot just toss away that narrative. That narrative is a part of us. And then we begin the process of deconstructing. But our narratives make us who we are. They make us unique. They make us um, you know, special in the eyes of God and each other. Uh, and so it's it's something that's vitally important to this conversation. So I'm very interested to hear from our listeners about their personal narratives. I hope that uh, you email us those personal narratives, maybe even mention them in comments and our social media platforms, because these narratives are vitally important to who we are.
1: Right, and that's what I think Brad did such a wonderful job of, like you said in the book. Of, it's what was helpful to me as he wove in where he was personally, mm-hmm. you know, in his faith journey as as a a teenager. And it was so multi layered too.
2: Yeah, I mean, grows up at a home that's really non religious, and then becomes evangelical. Also, a part of that story is him being Asian American. Uh, and so it's it just it really multi-layered. Just, just so many facets to our own stories. But he
1: brings in the overarching historical yeah. narrative too of what was going sure. on in in within the context of racism and nationalism and extremism. And you kind of through him see how easy it is for you know an impressionable kid to get wrapped up in something to the degree that they can't see. Out of it, right, and so it's it's a cautionary tale a little bit. Oh yeah, um, uh, good as well work. as just a lot of a lot of great information. So I thoroughly enjoyed the book. Um, I'm a big fan of the podcast, and I'm so excited about the interview. Um, I don't know if I've already mentioned this, a little bit starstruck (laughs) that he (laughs) took time for. This is, I
2: think, the fourth, fifth, sixth time (laughs) you've mentioned this. Uh, Yeah, that's uh, great. So, ladies and gentlemen, take a deep breath because this conversation with Brad Odishi is just outstanding. He is so delightful, so insightful and wise. You're really going to enjoy it. So stay tuned. You know, Missy, I really enjoy recording this podcast with you each and every week. Do you? Well, (laughs) uh, but this is not the only thing we do at Good Faith Media.
1: It's not. We have so many offerings for you. We have a plethora of podcasts, videos, news and opinion articles, Bible studies, books, and much, much more. Find us at goodfaithmedia.org.
2: Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special guest with us, all the way from California. Brad Onishi is a social commentator, scholar, writer, teacher, coach, and co host of the Straight White American Jesus Podcast, along with his co host, Daniel Miller. The pod ranks in the top 50 political shows on Apple Podcast Charts. His latest book, Preparing for War The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next, is currently available. Brad, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, so, Missy and I have worked through the book. We've been listening to the podcast religiously, and we are so excited because we have some connections that you may be unaware of. In the book and on the pod, you've mentioned the likes of Randall Balmer, Samuel Perry, and Nelson. All of them are good friends of Good Faith Media and have been on this pod. So, you are in great company, my friend. <laughs>
1: Well, we like to think. Well, well we Ann like is. to think
2: we're a good guy.
0: And and is uh and is an Oklahoman. She's a Sooner, if I'm not. If no, I'm she's mistaken, a ca- so. she's she's a cowboy. She <laughs> she is. Yeah, and, she grew up in yeah. Stillwater,
1: Samuel Perry's here as well. Yeah, he's at OU. At OU. Yeah. So yeah. He's,
0: yep.
2: Yep. He's
1: great as well. Yep. So.
2: And then, believe it or not, you actually had a conversation about me and didn't even know it. Oh no! Oh, man, no. <laughs> in your one of your most recent episodes of the podcast, uh, "Straight White American Jesus," you had Americans United CEO yes. President uh, Rachel La- uh, Lazar on there. Guess yeah. who the American Indian who is named in the lawsuit in Oklahoma might be.
0: <laughs> I did not know that. I had no idea that was okay. Well, that, I wish you would have said that. And but I also feel better because now I'm like, oh man, if you have a conversation about someone you don't know, that's really like nerve wracking. So, okay. Well, that that's, yeah. Yeah.
1: That's the worst gotcha moment we yeah, had.
0: That's exactly right.
1: thing, We were road tripping this weekend and we're getting caught up on your most recent episodes and you guys started talking about the case and she was mentioning a, an indigenous person on the case. I was like, hey, there you go. There hey, you go. That's, that's you. you.
2: That's amazing.
0: <laughs> That is amazing. Well, thank you for doing that. Thank you for that work, and thank you for being part of that case. Absolutely. So,
1: Brad, we have so many questions. I have so many notes. Um, I want to thank you for your most recent uplifting work um, that you've given us
2: preparing for more. Wah, <laughs>
1: um, But before we talk about the book, I want to talk about your background a little bit. Mitch and I were both um, born into similar circumstances here in the buckle of the Bible Belt, conservative evangelical. Um, culture. You weren't really born into that. So tell us about your background, how you became involved with um, the evangelical movement and and kind of got to where you are today.
0: Yeah. So I uh, was born, you know, I'm mixed race. My dad's Japanese American from Maui and uh, my mom's a white woman from West Tennessee. And so uh, they met in California. Uh, Our house was pretty non-religious growing up. And uh, at 14, I was getting in trouble a lot, uh, worrying mom, worrying dad. Uh, you know, it was the mid-90s. I had, uh, like, pink hair one day and yellow hair the next. <laughs> and, uh, Eddie, Vedder, Eddie Vedder and these guys and Kurt Cobain were, like, my heroes. And, you know, teenage stuff was happening, sex, drugs, rock and roll. And I got invited to a Wednesday night Bible study by uh, a girlfriend, and I just thought, perfect. Um, you know, we we'll sneak out of Bible study and make out. And um, mom (laughs) will definitely say that I can go to this Bible study on Wednesday night because it's church. She won't say no. This is a perfect plan. And I went to the place. uh, It was a a big church, kind of what I call a mini mega church, about 2000 people. And uh, as you would expect, there was a big youth group, kids playing games. There was cool leaders who were in their 20s and they had tattoos and guitars and and, uh, they didn't say anything about my clothes or my hair being kind of like punkish and all this kind of stuff they were just like hey how are you what's your name and uh all of a sudden church was my second home I, she dumped me soon thereafter but i was uh, <laughs> i was hooked and um you know before you knew it i converted uh, in an extreme way so that you know the very next christmas my mom wanted to know you know what do you want for christmas and i said here's some pamphlets um you know, if you would spend the money that you were going to spend on presents and buy Bibles for these people in Nepal, that would be my, uh, my preference because they've never heard the name Jesus. So I go from one extreme to another. By the time I'm 20, I'm a full-time minister. I'm married to my high school sweetheart and, uh, started seminary the right after I finished undergrad. Uh, and I was on my way to be kind of a church planter or senior pastor or missionary somewhere. And, uh, Obviously, that didn't happen.
1: (laughs) So I found so much commonality in your story as you wove your personal narrative into a historical narrative. Um, And I was telling Mitch before we came on today, we were kind of discussing what we were going to talk about. And I I said, I I was that girl. (laughs) Inviting the boys to church. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And I felt, yes, um, a little bit bad about that. But um, I will tell you one thing that I'm not sure that you had in California were the big old first Baptist church buildings with lots of nooks and crannies to make out. in. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yes, yeah. Yeah, so that's so relatable. But one of the things you begin and end the book with is the question, would I have been there mm. in referring to Jane six? And I'm not sure if there's anyone who grew up in our contexts um, who is in the process of a process of unpacking and, and things today that has not asked themselves that question and has not wrestled with it. And it's something that has definitely been on my mind. And somehow, luckily, I didn't end up there, but I don't know how I didn't end up there. So I wanted to know how did, did you growing up in that then make that pivot in that turn and not end up being there?
0: Yeah. I think, you know, I think for me with January 6th, I think some people are like, Oh, that's kind of, are you serious? You wouldn't have been there. And I, you know, I think what my, my response is, is that um, look, I, again, I was asking my mom not to buy Christmas presents to send Bibles to Nepal. I, led a Bible study at lunchtime at my public high school. I, uh, you know, some people might remember See You at the Pole, uh, which was a, a yearly gathering where students <laughs> pray for the renewal of the nation. Yeah, right. Yes, and I I, I, I ruin everything. And so <laughs> I, um, <laughs> my senior year, I decided I was going to do See You at the Pole every Friday. Um, And sometimes there was like another student or two. Most Fridays was just me. And uh, so when people are like, would you really have been at January 6th? I'm like, here are the receipts for the ways that I was really, 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 really committed to what I thought was God's plan for the world. Um, I uh, left the, the, the movement in the church when I was 24. And what happened is that I just... Got to seminary. I'd already been a philosophy major in in college. Uh, It was a Christian college, but nonetheless was reading a lot. Got to seminary and started reading a lot more. And read all about church history. Read all about the Protestant Reformation. Read all about the early church. uh, Read all about uh, the history of the United States and American religion. And all of a sudden realized that the faith I was practicing was, uh, was not something timeless. It was something that had been in many ways... Uh, synthesized uh, in the last 50 60 years in the midst of american culture wars and so i started to really think there's got to be more to this gospel than the reduction of the world to us and them to heaven and hell to uh here or there um and i want to know what that is and so uh my then wife and i said we've we've got to get out of here and we don't want to be missionaries and we don't want to be pastors what are we going to do and I said, "Well, I really want to go. I want to stay in school because I just want to read all these books and figure this out." So uh, we we decided we were going to move somewhere in the English speaking world where I could go to school. I didn't speak any other language at the time, and she could play basketball. She's an athlete, so she could play like professional basketball. Um, I, I'm happy to tell the story, but I of how I did this. But I definitely cajoled Oxford University into letting me in for a <laughs> master's degree, and um, was 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 able to tell everyone at church. Hey, I'm not going to go be a uh, like a senior pastor or plan a church anywhere. I'm going to go to Oxford to get a degree in theology, which was a very like soft landing because it was sure. acceptable. It was like they couldn't they couldn't say no to that. That sounded mm-hmm. very fancy. They would have preferred that I had said, "Hey, I'm going to go over here to the next town over and start that church that y'all want me to do," or "I'm going to move, you know, back to Maui where my family is and open a church there." When I get to England, it all happened quick. I had never been outside my hometown. I had never been in a place where when I went into the grocery store, I didn't know 100 people from church. I had never not, you know, in my adult life, not been an an example for every kid in town. That was my, you know, when I left the house, it was like I knew I was going to see somebody from church at the ball field at the grocery store and that they were all looking up to me. When we got married, when I was 20, there were a thousand people at the wedding. Wow. And they, those were all the kids from the youth group and their parents and all that. So I get to England and now I'm just a dude. Nobody knows <laughs> me. Nobody's watching me. Nobody cares what stack of books they see at the coffee shop. Right. That right. I'm reading. And they're going to like tell the senior pastor they're worried about me because they saw Brad reading <laughs> Carl Bart or uh, something else. And so I just thought, hey, I'm going to I'm going to give this everything I have. Well, my, my wife and I decided to get divorced. She was in a different place in life. Sure. So as I, you know, yeah. you're a little different when you're 24 than when you're 14, as yeah. it turns out. And we started dating when I was 14. So she left and you know, it wasn't a, you know, terrible divorce. Somebody cheated. Somebody's this throwing clothes out the window. It was like just two people saying, admitting to themselves, they were going separate ways. Sure. But within six months, I'm living in a dorm room in, a, in England. I'm divorced. I'm not sure I believe in God. Mm -hmm. And my life is completely uncertain for the first time in my, my adult existence. And that was incredible. It was exhilarating. I could do whatever I wanted and I've never been more unsure of who I am and uncertain about my future than in those months.
2: (laughs) Well, I mean, your your personal story is a big part of the book. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the issues that you discuss in the book uh, here in a bit. But one of the things I want to follow up on, uh, Brad, is that this process of deconstruction is central to your personal narrative. A lot of our listeners coming out of the pandemic, uh, the social uprising with Black Lives Matter, Uh, just the controversy around evangelicalism, the rise of Trumpism, are currently questioning the orthodoxy of their faith. And so they are either in the throngs of deconstruction or at the beginning of deconstruction. As someone who has gone through this process, can you give our listeners some assurance that this is a natural process. And if they stay with it, and if they ask the right questions, they're going to be okay coming out of it. Can you just give some hints about kind of what you went through and some uh, incentives on on why they should stick with this process?
0: Yeah, I, I. that's a good, it's a really good question. I think that, you know, one, one thing that I think is really helpful when you're going through something like that is to try to map where you are. You know, you know, when you go on a hike, or you go to you go to amusement park and you stop every once in a while and there's a sign that says you are here. And I think when you deconstruct, it's always helpful to have that because it feels at times like you've gotten off the trail mm-hmm. or you've lost the plot and you don't know where you're going next. And I think one thing I would say is that if you think about deconstruction from a high demand religion, could be evangelicalism, could be anything else, um, you're taking a faith that demanded every facet of you be enveloped in it and you're starting to break away. So what you're doing is you're discovering parts of you that didn't make it when you, ha- you when you were subsumed underneath all of the the dogma the doctrine the teaching the social aspects of the church the gender roles whatever it may be and you're breaking away from that and therefore every aspect of your life is going to be put into question at some point um who are you in terms of your personality right? Just Mm kind of, who are you when you're not in that environment? What do you like all the way to your finances, your friends, your social life? How do you build up a support system? How do you find values that you believe in, in the world? And I, I just, I, I, you know, I'll keep it short, but I'll just say uncertainty is built into that process. Mm -hmm. And so if you're uncertain about where you're going, you're doing it right. Uh, I think that's one. I think two, um, there's this process of rediscovering yourself, uh, in a way that, um, is really scary because you're going to have to trust yourself and your body in ways that you kind of have been not used to doing. And my biggest advice for people is, um, you, you are your best compass. You're going to find what you need when it comes to community, when it comes to values, when it comes to relationships, when it comes to the political, um, ideals, when it comes to just how you want to exist in the world, but it takes time um, and it takes, uh, moments where you're, you will feel like, I don't know what I'm doing anymore. And then other moments of like, I've never been so happy in my life and they may be in the same day and that's okay. I love that. And you're, and I'm going to say one more thing is we're going to do cringy stuff because, uh, we're trying to figure out who we are. A lot of us didn't have a youth or a, a young adulthood that, you know, let us do kind of what we wanted. And so there's just moments you're going to have to figure out how to do things or, try things for the first time or go out into the world and be in a way you have never been. And you might look back and go, that was really embarrassed. That was just awkward and kind of weird. And I, yeah, three years from now, you're like, why did I do that? That's totally okay. <laughs> exactly. be, it's totally okay. You want to be, you know, everybody should be safe and everybody should stay within the, the boundaries that they need for themselves. But I'm just telling you when you do something cringy, cause you've, you're like newly deconstructing and you're trying something else out in the world that you've never, like, I have, I have sat in pubs in England at age 24 and put the cigarette in the wrong end of my mouth because I was like <laughs> telling someone I had just met that, of course, I'm cool. And I would also like to smoke a cigarette like you and then put it in the wrong end of my mouth because I had no idea what I was doing and had just never thought about it. But it was what that was my moment of being a rebel. So, yeah, that's so embarrassing. Who cares? It happens. Live your life. Love yourself. And. Uh, find people that will do the same. I love so that. as
1: you're talking, it reminded me of something in the book that I wrote down because it it just meant a lot to me, um, an exercise you do with your college students where you tell them we all live according to myths, it's just a matter of which one, and then you go about explaining to these kids who are very um, analytical kind of science majors how, in fact, that is absolutely true. For people like the three of us sitting here who very much grew up with the myth, and and you You say in the book that the teachings of the Antichrist shaped your worldview. We were so affected by that and so suppressed in development by that in feeling the weight of the spiritual world on our shoulders at 14, 15, 16. And you talk about feeling this pressure not to even kiss your girlfriend, because if you did, you know, the world was going to implode around us. And we just think about in the 80s and the 90s and being part of youth evangelical movements and how much that was ingrained in us and how detrimental that was on a developmental level and so like you said then you find yourself over in a pub in England at 24 not knowing which end of the cigarette to put in your mouth and yeah. so i just that it's so relatable and it's also so important that we acknowledge that we do all live according to some sort of myth. Acknowledge what those are, what you want to take from that and how you want to move forward in your life in a healthy and productive way.
0: I think the most important thing we do when we deconstruct is we find we have to find the stories we want to live by. Mm-hmm. And it's hard. And at times what you're gonna what you're gonna feel is I don't have a story yet. I have like a chapter or like I have like I don't even have a chapter. I have like one verse of a poem. And, you know, that one verse of a poem that that is the story of you or your life or what you're going to live by that may get you through today or may get you through this month. And then you might look up six months from now and go, you know, I do think I have a chapter. I do think I know the story of me. And all of a sudden, 10 years from now, hopefully, if if you stay the course, you'll look up and go, yeah, I have a new story. And I, that's the story I'm living by. It's the one I'm going to uh, always come back to as my North Star. It's the one I'm going to try to you know, hand off to my kids and my community. So we all have a stories that we like. We guide our life by. It's just a matter of which ones. And I think what happens when you deconstruct is you no longer have a grand narrative overriding every molecule of your being. And so that's really, really scary. Right.
2: You know, I can so relate to what you just said, and this is going to lead into uh, kind of a, a changing in topics. But one of the things that I've been dealing with lately has been this decolonizing of my faith and my personhood and as an indigenous person as a person of mixed ethnicities it's a struggle because you want to honor both of those ethnicities but which one rules over the other or can they live in you know harmony with one another and as i deconstruct this colonized version of myself i find myself gravitating towards my indigenous uh, ancestors And, you know, I mean, just the the narratives that continue to come flooding in my, you know, my great grandmother being a resident of a boarding school here in Oklahoma. That's one of the reasons (laughs) I'm part of this uh, lawsuit here in Oklahoma, because we've seen what government funds can do uh, when religion and, and, and the government is mixed together. But I say all of that to say this, that. In the book you talk about a lot of different issues on your podcast you and Dan do a brilliant job bringing these to light. But Brad, do you think a lot of the issues that we face as a country now, especially those that have been spawned by this MAGA movement over the last, you know, 8 years or so. Do you think they can be tied directly back to America's original sins of genocide, slavery,
0: and patriarchal dominance i mean I, I think in short yes um i think that uh it's a it, it in some ways it's a really simple story um this is a country found on attempted genocide it's also a country found on um founded in many ways on chattel slavery that, that is that's fact. the story fact, now yeah, yeah um now, is it more complicated? Yes, we're talking about you know four and five hundred years of history and various iterations of all of that, and the ways that it looks like on the ground and somewhere like Oklahoma or Mississippi or Georgia or other places, or what we now call Mississippi and Oklahoma and Georgia. Um, so, uh, one of the things I've talked about lately is that you know the the, the drive-in schools the drive-in in uh places like Florida and Texas to ban books and to make sure that you know students don't have a chance to take a class on uh, African American uh studies or on um learning the histories that you just recounted in brief mm-hmm. uh whether it be histories of attempted genocide with uh indigenous folks whether it is Chinese exclusion whether it is Japanese incarceration whether it is the middle passage is there's a bet that racial ignorance will mean the status quo stays in place. Mm-hmm. That if you don't teach those things, and if you don't face those things, then no one will ever upset the systems that those things, right, were built on then and continue to be built on now. And so, you know, what I told Robert Jones the other day, talking about his book, is that you have a doctrine of discovery that, come, right, that, is, mm-hmm. that comes from the, the Pope even before the uh, the Protestant Reformation. And the doctrine of discovery basically says... Europeans, when you go to these quote-unquote new lands, if you meet people who are not Christian, you have the the right to enslave them. And now we have a doctrine of forgetting, right? The doctrine of discovery spawns the doctrine of forgetting. Because if you can forget all that and have a generation of students and young people that don't know any of those things, then they won't do things. Like you know, take part in lawsuits as you are doing. They won't do things like fight, right? For, for justice when it comes to taking down uh, Confederate monuments or, um, you know, making sure there is, right, a, a national uh, recognition of Emmett Till uh, and so on and so on and so on. So uh, uh, to to stay on uh, the, the, the subject of religion, I would just add to close this that one of the reasons I talk a lot about white Christian nationalism is because uh, Christianity's just tied into those original sins. Christianity has been part of them. It's entangled in them. There are many Christians who are trying to, uh, of course, and you know this better than me, face those, reckon with what it means to be a Christian in light of that history. But there are many who are not and who would say that uh, Christianity and American nationalism are the twin pillars of my story. And if you question those, you question me. And therefore, I will not stand for any questioning of those. I will not stand for any critical investigation of them. I will not allow you right, to somehow make that story more complicated than I want, because I don't want that. I don't want to deconstruct those stories. Right. I want them to be in place not only so I can feel comfortable, so I can maintain power. Mm. And I think that's that's w- what it comes down to.
2: And your book inspired me to go back and reread uh, Heather Cox Richardson's book about how the South won the Civil War, which is a, a wonderful book as well. complements yours just beautifully. As I was reading your book and then revisiting uh, uh, her book, I kept asking this question to to myself, Brad, and I want to pose it to you. And to be honest with you, I'm really terrified about the answer, (laughs) but I think I know the answer. (laughs) Um, The Civil War never ceased. Yeah. And we talk about, I mean, even in the title of your book, Preparing for War, is the reality that we are, Are in a continuous war internally within America. Just this last weekend, three people are shot dead, people of color shot dead in Jacksonville, uh, Florida, just because of the color of their skin. We see it time and time again in this country white Christian nationalism, predominantly males, opening fire on their fellow citizens. Are we already in war?
0: So I, I, I agree. And, and Heather Cox Richardson's book, she's uh, that, that book is really genius book. Um, so um, if you all can read that one, read that one. But, you know, what she shows is that that the South won the Civil War in the sense. And this goes back to something we've been talking about all day in that the myths of the Civil War and the myth of America that the Confederacy told. Right. In many ways, uh, won out in in large swaths of the country. And so that's what I think you know, you're referencing when you say the Civil War never stopped is. Sure, the, the the guns were put down and uh, the, the Confederacy surrendered, but the war continued in the way that the story was told about the country, right? The way that the the, the myth of the American nation is recounted to generation after generation after generation. And so uh, today, what I see are uh, little fires everywhere. I, I, You know, what I tell people is I don't think we're going to see North versus South again, but what I do think what we're going to see, and we are, we're seeing it right now, is an attempt to create right very different nations uh, within the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have a situation right where you live in a state where you cannot, you have no access to to, to abortion, where you go to school and there is no teaching of ethnic studies or African-American studies um, or anything where books can be taken out of the library if just one parent complains. One parent calls the librarian and says, I don't like this book because of this reason, and then the book's off the shelf, okay? Um, If in in that state, uh, the prisons are privatized to the point that there is money to be made by incarcerating people, if in that state, the public schools are religious because the state is giving money Two schools that right are openly and explicitly and vehemently Catholic, uh, or something else, then you live in a very different United States than somebody who might live, uh, in, in in California or in Oregon or something else. Uh, here's my point. Um, we are already living in, in a, in a country where people have vastly different experiences of, of their freedoms. Mm -hmm. In addition, we live in a country where, uh, we are subject to uh violent threat at every turn so you mentioned if you are a black person in the country it remains today whether it's in jacksonville whether it's in upstate new york uh, you know it, whether it is anywhere you are under threat if you are a non-christian person we can talk about right the tree of life in pittsburgh we can talk about all of the rising anti-semitism you are under threat of being at- attacked if you are an asian Asian American. I mean, I live one mile from one of the few remaining Japan towns in uh, the United States. And during covid, we we had in our neighborhood a, a night, a watch where people would walk around with the older folks in the community uh, when they were shopping and stuff. So they wouldn't get attacked in Japan town. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about a place where there's like a few Asian Americans. I'm right. talking about a place where like, you know, Asian faces are the norm. And you have to be protected if you're an elder in the community, because you might get clocked on the head, right? We have a we have a country where guys with AR-15s stand outside of voting drop boxes. We have a country where uh, your electric grid in a small town might be terrorized because that's a good way to stop drag queen story hour. Just cut the power to the whole city. And somebody did that in North Carolina, right? Um, we have a country where uh, if you hang a pride flag in California, mm-hmm. You might be killed for hanging the pride flag. We have a country where a year ago in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, uh, about three dozen Patriot Front members tried to terrorize and commit a massacre at a pride event and were stopped seconds before they did it. And I interviewed somebody who was there and they said we were seconds from one of the worst atrocities in American history if they had not been stopped. Um, so we already live in that state. We live in that condition. And so my goal is not to be hyperbolic and scary. And, you know, whenever I talk about my book, I always have to tell people, like, I'm actually kind of fun at dinner parties. I'm not just like doom and gloom and,
1: when do we get to um, meet that guy?
0: Yeah. Like, you know, I'm not just I don't just show up to the dinner party and just start talking about Christian nationalism and civil sure. war. But what I do want to say is like. You know, if we don't face up to the condition we're already in, how are we ever going to do anything to change it? And I just, that, that to me is the most important Well, the one part. thing that
2: you really, I think made clear in the book and you continue to make clear each and every week on the podcast is that this type of religious rhetoric that has been around for ever often leads to this kind of result, these kind of actions. And you specifically make a connection with January 6th and what happens at Jericho.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: That was that was pretty, I mean, not eye-opening to me, I've heard it, but just the way you describe it and, mm. and weave it through the book shed a new light for me in understanding that these stories that we were taught in Sunday school, you know, are so ingrained in our fabric that then we're not even able to see a correlation when it happens for real, aren't our capital in such a way that is so horrific Yeah. that we don't yeah. see that those ideas planted and the way that they're sold to us, the way that they're taught to us, the way it's ingrained, then, you know, it shows up again.
2: It really wasn't an attempt to thwart an election as much as it was to overthrow democracy itself. Mm. Oh yeah, I have yeah. I have several
1: yeah. quotes here demonstrating just that from <laughs> from the book <laughs> um that I wrote down but but one of the things that you said was a group that uh who believes it has an inherent right to power sees democracy as unfortunate collateral damage in their culture war. If the will of the people needs to be left behind to remake America as the city on the hill, so be it. And that's terrifying.
0: It is. So let me let me just back up that statement because some people listening are like, well, come on. Is that true? That's nice to write a book. But, you know, is that really? (laughs) But that's what we've all been
1: saying forever. Oh, yeah. No, that's not really true. Our democracy will hold, you know, people, you know, in power will have that kind of I won't go any further than this moment. But we've seen time and time again, they will.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's I think that's right. And I think um, what I try to do in the chapters before the January 6th chapter is say, look, For 25 years leaders of the religious right have been looking to russia as the example of what they want in a society they've they've seen someone like putin and his rise to power and they've said look that country is pure that country is homogeneous racially when muslims uh, are present they're either told explicitly you're a second-class citizen be quiet or they just they just say you can't be here get out when gay people show up, do they let them get married? No, they just they either put them in jail or they go off somewhere. And no one ever hears from them again. And Putin does this in what name? He does this in the name of Russia's spiritual values, its religious history, its Christian identity. If you if you look at Putin's uh, rhetoric over the last few years, it's very, very clear. Leaders of the religious right didn't start looking to Putin in 2018 when Trump was president. It was in 1998 you can go back even further and I can show you the books and I can show you my own book of, of where all of that is true. Uh, also Orban. And just today, Tucker Carlson was talking about Orban and how great he is. But Orban is another one who does everything he can as, uh, an anti-democratic leader Mm -hmm. to be a Christian leader. It's all in the name of family values. Mothers and fathers, only two genders, no gay people, no queer people, Christian history, Judeo-Christian ways of life. That's the whole rhetoric, right? Okay. So they're enamored with those guys who are willing to do away with democracy in order to get what they want. And then on January 6th, they show up. And the night before there's a Jericho march and most people listening are like, I know the story of Jericho heard it a hundred times. And I say it in the book, like when I'm a youth pastor, age 21, I love the story of Jericho because they're, you know, when you're 21 and you got to show up and teach 10 kids the Bible, if it is like Leviticus 8, you're like, what are we going to do here? (laughs) Like, you know, this is not going to be a fun Sunday morning when it's Jericho. This is great. Hey, y'all, look at these folks. They marched around. Everybody thought they were crazy, but guess what? The walls fell down and they believed God. If you believe God, he'll do amazing things in your life. Don't worry about what the world says to you or those kids at school. Just trust God and look, the walls will fall down. What are the walls in your life and in your heart? You know, what is that? All right. Good, good talk. Go get a donut. You know, we'll see you (laughs) you later. Say hi to your folks for me. The end of the story of Jericho is they kill every man, woman, child, and animal in Jericho. Mm -hmm. So when you have... A Jericho march on January 5, right, in Washington, D.C., when you've had Jericho marches all around the swing states since the election and you're praying that God would bring the walls down, you know what you're saying? You're saying we are Israel in this. Let's just keep talking about – we're talking about stories today, talking about myths. Mm -hmm. We all play a part in a story. So here's the story we're going to live out today. We are the Israelites. God told us, march around the city and the walls will fall down. And when the walls fall down – We're going to get in there and we're going to do what they did in Jericho. Right. And you put the two and two together and you're like, wow, January 5th, Jericho, March, January 6th, January 6th. And you start to realize the story they're living out are as godly warriors who are not out to protect democracy. They just want control and dominion over the earth because they think that's what God sent them to do.
2: All right, Brad, I'm thoroughly depressed now. I told you I didn't <laughs> want to know the answer to that question, but uh, thanks anyway. Uh, so before I pitch it to Missy to ask our final question today, can you give us some hope, Brad? I mean, is there or some Or at good- least
1: some marching orders. If that's,
2: <laughs> yeah. Tell me to if go march around not- a building. What building do I need to go <laughs> march Let's around? Let's reframe
1: Brad? that coded language and you spin it a different way for us. Yeah. So yeah. Those, those of us so. who are trying to make a difference for good, help us with some constructive advice.
0: Look, here's the thing is um, y'all are in Oklahoma. And I think that if a lot of folks around the country were asked about Oklahoma, they would, they would say, I I don't know. What is the hope in Oklahoma? You got Ryan Walters Mm -hmm. here, your school superintendent, who's, doing all manner of things to basically tear down the public schools, at least from my vantage point. Um, I've talked to folks in uh, Missouri. I've talked to folks in Tennessee. I've talked to folks. I just got back from Texas a few days ago. And every time I go to one of those places that from the outside looks like it's quote unquote deep red, or it's caught up in a MAGA movement that seems entrenched. I find people who are the most resilient, the most persistent and the most committed to a country that lives up to its creed for the first time. Um and you know you you all give me hope. Um every time you go into St. Louis or Fort Worth, every time you go somewhere where you think, well, I'm not going to find anything here but maga darkness. You know what you find? You find people organizing, you find people trying to find ways to work together. And I think to me that is the greatest hope. Like Hope comes from us doing things together. Like I am really good at being at home, doom scrolling under the covers, getting really sad (laughs) and saying, I don't want to get up tomorrow morning because it just it all seems bad. You know, when I feel the best, it's when I spend that Saturday protesting or working with people on something that I really believe in. Right. When I gather with those who have a vision or a, a story for the United States that I share and say, let's go do that. And not everybody has time. You all have to work. You all have kids. You all have. Parents to take care of. You got all kinds of stuff. What's one area where you feel like you can do that, right? What's one place in your schedule in your life? Is it a Friday? Uh, a Friday a month? Is it a Saturday a month? Is it a every Wednesday you do this? What are the places where you're going to gather with those that have uh, a vision that is it, 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 that that is uh, resonates with yours? I'll just say one last thing on this is that. um, you know what gives me hope is that there's a lot of people out there who oftentimes uh, have a hard time talking to each other that realize they're best as allies in a coalition fighting for the American experiment. Um, uh, you know, I I kind of straddle a, a a bunch of worlds. One of them is between atheists and and religious folks. I speak at a lot of atheist conventions. I speak at a lot of churches, and I love both. And you know what I find with my atheist friends? They don't, they don't ever sit around and y'all might, this might be surprising. They don't sit around and debate. What is atheism? What does it mean? <laughs> we don't, I don't, I don't ever hear anyone tell me, Hey, I, I finally figured out the best argument to disprove God's existence. <laughs> you know what the atheist folks do at those conventions? They could not care less about that. You know what they care about? LGBTQ rights, Yeah. Relig- you know, freedom from religion, mm-hmm. good public schools, democracy, voting rights, stopping gerrymandering. And when I go talk to my mainline Christian friends and other Christian friends, you know what they care about? The same things. Yeah, absolutely. Right. right, Absolutely. And so there are, there are ways that there are such a diverse and beautiful coalition of Americans ready to say, this is not the American story we're going to let be told here and enacted and ritualized and embodied. And we're going to do something different. And so um, to me, that's hope to me. That is like, I don't know the end of the story and the story is not going to end probably before my life does, but I'm going to, I'm going to create a space with others and we're going to walk and we're going to go somewhere. And then we're going to be able to leave that path to the next people that come along and say, Hey, we started it right. Keep going on on this path. Keep walking in that direction. The arc of the universe might bend towards justice, but it doesn't have to, Mm. but it might, it doesn't have to, but if we walk that way, And if we keep walking that way, then I think it will. And I think that's why we keep trying.
2: All right, Brad, I feel better. Thanks. I appreciate that. Uh, still
1: still going to close this out and get
2: a drink. That's right. Uh, Brad Onisi is the co-host of Straight White American Jesus Podcast, along with his co-host, Daniel Miller. He also has an incredible book out, Preparing for War, the Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. Brad, thank you so much for your time today. It has been a fantastic conversation, and you are always welcome back to Good Faith Weekly.
1: All right, Brad, before we let you go, I have one last question for you. As you know, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of your work and our conversation today, what is your more to tell?
0: Well, I just think, I think it's what we just talked about. I think that um, I think one of the things I'm always trying to do is tell the story of where we've been, tell the story of where I've been. And um, I, I think one of the things that uh, helps me get up in the morning is is that there's more to tell of this story. Uh, my story, um, your story, and the story that we have together. And so um, I think the more to tell comes from the willingness to say, yeah, we're not going to let extremist, myopic, malicious forces tell our story for us. It's not going to happen. And we may be outnumbered. We may not have as much money or as much whatever, but we're just not going to let that happen. So we will continue walking this way. And so for me, telling that story uh is is always what's left to tell and there's there's kind of some beauty in that right that the stories um there's always more to pursue uh when it comes to uh finishing the tale it's it's actually never done it's somewhat beautiful the example of this i love the most comes from gregory of nissa third century theologian who wrote a book about moses and it was like a mystical interpretation of moses and he writes in this book that, you know, every time Moses is pursuing God on the mountain, God seems further away, right? So every time that, you know, Moses gets closer to God, the, the Shekinah glory, uh, and he reaches a peak and looks up, God is even further away, right? And it's sort of this mystical path that you have to walk, that the closer you get to to what you're looking for, the farther it seems to be. And in some ways, a lot of folks are like, well, that's frustrating. I, why would I do that? But I guess for me, that is the beauty of being human, is that uh, we we wake up every day pursue, pursuing what we take to be transcendent and divine and worth our love and our affection. And uh, we look up at night, and uh, it's somehow closer than it's ever been and even further than we'd ever imagined. And that's why being human is so wonderful and uh, so vulnerable at the same time. And I think that's why there's always more to tell.
2: Lovely. Thank
1: Lovely. you so much, Brad, for being with us today. This was wonderful.
0: Brad, thanks so much. Uh, we
2: wish you the very best and uh, lots going on in your life. So uh, <laughs> mazel tov, my friend, mazel <laughs>
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Thank you.
1: I'm chewing on something from this interview.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Hopefully it's not your cud, but go ahead. (laughs) Gross.
1: (laughs) If we don't face up to the condition we're already in, how will we change it?
2: And I think that, you know, quite honestly, I think that's what Brad does a great job um, revealing in the book uh, as well as other conversations we've had with him and on his podcast is that January 6th for America was a wake-up call, and people actually began to see with their own eyes and were convinced that this concept of Christian nationalism was not merely rhetoric alone, that there were actions attached to this rhetoric, and they saw it firsthand, and they began to realize this is where we are.
1: I think you're right about that. I think the the thing that's a little bit scary for me, though, still is that we in, in the United States still have pretty short memories. And one thing that Brad talks about in the book is the change in discussion about those events, even within the two years since they've occurred, how some of the language has softened about what exactly that was or what happened, or um, he speaks about the the woman who was killed, who um, kind of how the wording changed around her, yep. and she became someone, this white woman who was killed, and rest in white power, things like that were being said afterwards.
2: And that is the struggle for, uh, there's a struggle for language when these narratives are being put together. And we have seen that throughout history. Uh, I mean, we've seen it firsthand here in the state of Oklahoma. Back in 1921, Black Wall Street's burned down. And how was it defined in 21? It was defined as a race what? Riot. But what was it really? A race massacre.
1: Massacre, yes. And
2: And that language is extremely important. And there is a struggle for language Because language defines that moment. And what we saw on January 6th is exactly what is taking place. There has been an attempt to tone down what actually happened. And the reality is that there was an attempt not only to overthrow an election, but to literally overthrow democracy itself.
1: So let's talk about the question that Brad asked himself in the book is, would I have been there? Can you answer that?
2: Yeah, I can answer it. Yeah. In in your
1: life that would have led you there? A
2: hundred percent. I can see a pathway. I mean, a lot of people don't realize about me. I I often mention it. I allude to it. I make jokes about it, but I was a raving fundamentalist back (laughs) in high school and college. And in my college days, I mean, I was a Rush Limbaugh, Back in my college days, I was a disciple of Rush Limbaugh to the extent that I would make arguments in class using Limbaugh's rhetoric and even wrote his rhetoric into my papers to the point where one professor wrote this, whoa there, little Rush. (laughs) And When I read that on my paper, it actually kind of took me aback that what am I doing? I'm only just mimicking what I'm hearing. Now, I didn't stop my ideology at the time, but uh, yes, I was on a path towards this radicalization because I bought into it.
1: What I think is interesting is what um, Brad mentions as kind of his progress or his slow wake-up call to what he was immersed in is very similar to what your story is, which oddly enough was seminary and reading.
2: Yeah, yeah, and in my story, it's kind of the great irony of ironies because I attend a Southern Baptist seminary down in Fort Worth, Texas. But at the time, it was an incredible institution that challenged uh, seminarians to actually read scripture, understand history in its context, and allow these uh, thoughts and uh, processes to. Uh, mold your mind and your theology, and so when I actually began to read the Bible and to understand what it was communicating—not in a literal sense, but in a truth sense—my mind was blown because it is still one of the most radical books that has ever been penned.
1: I feel like for you know our process of evolution, as we talked about in the intro, that. Jesus that we were kind of taught to follow, the marching into battle to fight the evils and and the you know, the spiritual warfare and you know the enemy against that. And then you read like you said, you read the Bible and you're like, that's not the guy that I'm reading about. And so
2: what's interesting about the connection that Brad makes in the book, the marching around Jericho, you know, illustration of what happened on January sixth, actually. What's interesting about this is that the Jesus I was taught about in uh, my formative years, was much more like Joshua, the general, who led the Israelites into battle to conquer the holy land that Yahweh had supposedly given them. And that was the Messiah that I was told about. I was not educated upon or I was not educated about the Jesus of the gospel. And that was a travesty.
1: But like he said, we we learned those stories, like the one about Jericho, and we placed ourselves in the narrative as those of the righteous who were entitled to this land, and we just kind of skip over or gloss over the narrative on the other side of that, you know, and so we were just, the way we were taught the the heroes in, in a very simplistic way, as opposed to let's unpack things in a more complex narrative and let's examine this story from all sides and let's not automatically place ourselves where we think we should belong in this story. mm mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and just the whole idea of being the chosen of God. You know, we hear about it in the Old Testament, uh, we hear about it in the New Testament, and especially uh, in uh, uh, Reformation type of theology, Reformed theology about the elect. That you know, God has looked down upon this earth, and He has seen the individuals who are righteous, and therefore has chosen them to be His. Rep- and it's always him, his representatives on this earth. And if you are convinced of that, Missy, if you are convinced that the creator of the universe has looked down and pointed at you and said, you are the only hope for my message to fill this world and go out and do it. That is a heavy burden to bear But it's also marching orders that blind you to the realities of this world. And God forbid you would think outside of yourself and that there are other people out there who have other ideas and other understandings of God, interpretations of the Bible. You are blinded by it. Right. And they just can't get past it. And that is what is so terrifying about this movement known as white Christian nationalism.
1: It is very scary because, like you said, when you think you have, you know, when God is on your side and when you're, uh, your goal is a righteous goal, then all of a sudden it, the collateral damage just doesn't matter anymore.
2: Yeah. And we've seen it throughout history. I mean, this God, this this chosenness or this God, uh, this Uh, divine selection of God, of the human race. We've seen it used to uh, set white people apart from black people, from brown people. We've seen it in what's called the Doctrine of Discovery. We've seen it in Manifest Destiny. We've seen it in slavery, Jim Crow. We've seen it in immigration laws. We've seen it in internment camps. We've seen it continuously. This is a thread that has run through history, And this idea of Christian nationalism, and it's not only American Christian nationalism, because it is taking place all over the world. It's been present throughout history, but it is rising again globally. And we must rise up, speak out against it. And that's what I I like the way Brad ends the interview, because that's what inspires him. He sees people in Oklahoma, Texas, Texas, tennessee arkansas florida rising up and saying no this is not right and we are going to combat it at every level
1: and what he kind of how i started the conversation i'm going to circle back to it because he talks about the two you know pillars that are so intertwined of american nationalism and evangelical christian christianity and to question those when you're so entrenched in it, you're questioning someone's very being. Yeah. So I feel like you have a couple of things at play here. You have those in power who are going to seek to keep and and get, gain more power by any means necessary. But then you have those of us who were, I mean, I don't know, dare I say, kind of victims of some of this ideology that were, this identity is so ingrained that when you start to question things about these two ideas that are so inextricably linked that you don't know how to separate them. All of a sudden you're questioning my very being. Mm-hmm. And and that's a very scary place to be for a lot of people. And and I think that's where people just get trapped is it's, it's easier to stay here where I, I'm being told that I am the hero of the story. I am the chosen one. I am in this select group and keep that status quo as opposed to you know, bringing in some critical thinking. Um, you know, as as you, natural. You know, as you ended up doing, and as Brad did, and so many of others of us have been able to kind of separate ourselves and take take a step back and say, let's let's unpack this a little bit. Um, and
2: I, that, I, and I think you're exactly right. I think that might be, as you just stated, the biggest misstep of Christian nationalist because their Christianity, their type of Christianity, their type of nationalism is intertwined in their personhood and therefore it's their personhood that is challenged when these ideas are challenged but not only that missy they are attempting to overlay their personhood on everybody else so in other words to be a whole person you must be the type of Christian that I am. You must be the type of patriot that I am because that is who I am. And therefore that is who you must be. They are attempting to make everybody else intertwine that identity as well. That's why they advocate against LGBTQ people. That is why they advocate against immigrants That's why they advocate against people of color in a lot of issues because they're not them and they have different ideas. They vote differently. They worship differently. They live differently. And therefore they have a hard time understanding that kind of personhood because their personhood is so tied up in these two pillars.
1: And it's scary. It's scary to question, um, you know, foundational elements of your life and, and of who you are, you know, but I love what he said um, in the interview. He said, if you're uncertain about where you're going, then you're doing it right. Yeah.
2: That and awesome.
1: I love that. I think I'm just going to keep that kind of tucked away in my mind is that the the uncertainty and the unknown is not bad. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's kind of that faith seeking understanding, like we've talked about, you yeah. know, you put one foot in front of the other and you seek to to learn more and know more, and he says, "You are your best compass, you know, and trusting, trusting yourself." And, and he
2: gave us permission to be cringy and weird, right? I mean, <laughs> not that, that you needed any permission to do that. <laughs> oh <my goodness>. but <laughs> so,
1: and he talks about seeking, you know, at the end, he talks about seeking after God, and how you know, kind of the closer you walk, sometimes the further he feels away, you know further gets from you. And, and I was thinking about that in terms of, you know, a small child that asked a ton of questions. Just think what would happen if that small child stopped at one question mm-hmm. or two questions. Why is the sky blue? What, you know, where does the rain come from? Or, you know, the albeit, where do babies come from? Mm-hmm. Think about as human beings, if we stopped right there, All right. it's the questioning that has allowed us to progress. Why does this disease ravage a body? What can be done to combat it? How can we do this better? That's how we've progressed is by asking questions. But yet in this one, when it comes to faith and culture, we're a lot of times so afraid to ask those questions.
2: Every time you bring in kids, you always blow my mind. Because that's exactly what kids do. Because that's how they learn. Right. They are deconstructing their worlds. They're trying to bring understanding through this confusion that they're experiencing. What color is the sky? What color is the grass? What is that shape called? What is that number called? What does this letter sound like? It is a complete deconstruction of chaos so that by definition, the world begins to make sense to them. And that's what we're doing. We're deconstructing the mythology of this universe to help it make more sense. And I think that's what God wants us to do. God would be so disappointed if we just stayed in this type of limbo. We can't do it. Keep asking questions. Keep being cringy. Keep being weird. Because as Brad said, that is what gives us hope in this world. Those people who ask questions and stand up for what is right.
1: Absolutely. I agree.
2: Well, as you can tell, we were a little bit inspired by this interview this week, but uh, we hope that you enjoyed it and uh, have a great Labor Day weekend. And Missy and I will be back next week with another guest. Until then, keep living in good faith. You've been listening to Good Faith Weekly, hosted by Mitch and Missy Randall. This weekly podcast from Good Faith Media discusses matters of faith and culture.
1: Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and give us a like and a glowing review. We produce the podcast out of Norman, Oklahoma. Our music comes from Pond
2: 5. And we're supported by listeners like you. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org.